All right. Today on the Herbal Hour podcast, we have a return guest. His name is Eric Anderson. He is epic and he is a history teacher. Last episode, we talked about how the past and history influences us in these days. And this episode, we're going to be talking all about ancestral memory, archetypes, collective unconscious, these ideas of how history is actually embedded within our own psyches. So to open the floor, I would like to bring forward the idea of archetypes as originally spoken of by Carl Jung. So what he believed archetypes were, were these kind of primordial images that existed within our psyches that were part of the collective unconscious of humanity that showed these uh, common adaptations that basically rule behaviors that people will have. So he actually thought of them as the equivalent of instincts, but for the psychic sphere. So there's archetypes that we're well aware of, like the shadow, the wise old man, the animal, the anima, animus, uh, the hero. These are motifs that we see throughout movies. We see it in literature. And it's in large part what makes us very interested in these uh, archetypes. So I'd like to turn it over to you and... Let's dive in into an exploration of what are the archetypal foundations of our psyche and how does history play out because of them? Well, let me, let me say something, Bogdan, here. You said instinctual parts of our psychology, right? Or mm-hmm. of our intuition, instinctual intuition, you know, uh, that seems very paradoxical. We're trying to basically fit the body with the mind here. Uh, I guess that's what we're asking to do in some ways. That's a cool way to look at it. Because um, I wanted to, I want to talk a little bit about memory, right? So um, I just thought of a quote before we started this, actually, and um, you know, maybe I've heard it somewhere before, but to me, it just kind of came to me. It's it's a way to bridge last episode into this episode, and the quote is: "History informs us of sound psychology." Hmm. Okay, and that you know that might take a little bit of time to unwrap, but my idea is that by having a, a, the ability to reflect on our actions and um, even our instinctual behaviors and to try to like unwrap, uh, unravel them to kind of take control of who we are and and what we want to do with ourselves. Um, If we look back at the past, we can learn what not to do and also what to do. And that is sound psychology. You know, you know that people aren't perfect and they're going to make mistakes. So it's all about crafting or cultivating the type of personality that is able to respond to those mistakes and not get demoralized, but, you know, try to work forwards, uh, work towards a better outcome in the future. So I think that's, that's what we're going to try to do today. You know, maybe by taking a collective look at the, you know, the archetypes and whatnot, but really our goal, always our goal. And and I'm not a psychologist, but I'm just saying as someone who wants to, you know, help out humanity and get us all to love ourselves a little more. The ultimate goal of psychology is, is the individual and to heal the individual and find their place within this great big society and their purpose. Um, Cause we all have something to give that's for sure. Right. And there was something we were uh, previously speaking about where if you do not understand your past, you don't really know where you're going. And the idea of the archetypes as really being the encapsulation of all of human history. So you brought up a very interesting point because he thought that the archetypes in some sense were evolved, that over millions of people and millions of years, these psychic structures formed. Now, the archetypes themselves are not 
visible. They are just pure forms and they give rise to general ideas that are identical for every human, like the idea of the mother, the father, the God, these things, they, because they're formless archetypes, they express themselves differently in cultures. So you'll see, you know, this culture believes in this divine goddess who's a mother kind of archetype. And this other one also has a divine mother goddess, but they're different. They, you know, they wear different clothes. They did different things, but the idea is still the same. And what his deep point I believe was, was that just in the same way as instincts allow us to adapt properly to the physical environment, archetypes are what allows us to psychically adapt to our social environment. So like the reason that the baby latches onto the mother is because in some way, there's this innate idea of motherhood that exists within every human Hence why we can project those images on other people who are not even necessarily our mothers or pray to like icons of goddesses because we're really, um, we're tapping into something deeper than individuals. And that's kind of where the collective unconscious comes in. So my question for you is, what do you believe archetypes are? Like, what's your view on them? Uh, so I think it's good to maybe think of Plato's forms here just for an idea. And I think you sort of mentioned that before, right? So, um, like you said, they're almost like the, uh, the, the most, the, the idea in its most abstract form, right? If there's an isness, like a substance, they, they say usia, right? That term they always use in philosophy classes. Um, so what is the essence of an idea, like the root of it? Right. So I guess that's kind of the goal here is to find like the roots of our psychological behaviors. And as humans, we've, we've created these roles that represent um, the behaviors, the typical behaviors of certain types of people. Right. And these are all terms that Jung uses. Right. Personality types, um, archetypes. Uh, you know, you mentioned some before the father, the mother. Um, there's actually a few that are more specific. Uh, I see that they're organized like ego freedom social and order is like an axis and then there are a bunch there's like the caregiver the everyman's uh innocence the magician the ruler the sage the jester the outlaw those are more freedom based while the ruler uh and the sage is more order based so i just think that's you know there's it's deep here right what archetypes could be um i think they're infinite i, I think we shouldn't get caught up in that there are just these few that you know, young thought of. I think that was something I grappled with a lot when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Is like, are, are, can we know all the archetypes? You know, are, the, are, are there higher archetypes than the archetypes mm -hmm. that we know? Perhaps, you know, I don't want, uh, you know, I don't want to abstract too far out here, but um, I taught this in class this year in a philosophy class with high school kids and they like teaching the forms. I even got observed by my principal that day. You know, maybe luckily she's also Greek, so she might've understood that I was doing it, you know, for the good of Plato, obviously. But it's a tough thing to teach kids, man. They really struggle to, you know, at first grasp what it is. I think you need to have visuals to really break it down and show the levels of what, of how an archetype manifests. So to think, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to grasp what an archetype is from mm -hmm. the abstract level. Level if we don't understand like the, the 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 like the pathway that it takes to to manifesting itself in our world, if you understand what I'm saying in the physical right. world, so what are the, the way, examples of this archetype? The way we can bring it down to the earthly sphere, especially for uh, for kids. So we tend to think of archetypes as these very like abstract notions, but bringing it down to everyday life, yes. an archetype 
is the reason when you go to see a movie, you know pretty much instantly who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, who's the wise sage, who is, you know, the the silly companion jokester. And these, you just know right away just by how they act, by how they look. And movies are trying to express these fundamental notions that we already know. Hence, we can actually identify with the movie because we identify with the archetype that exists within us, the, the heroic aspect of our own selves that we see, you know, the hero on the screen go through all these struggles and we see ourselves in that. That's why we actually believe we are the people in the movie. And in a sense, we are all of the people in the movie, including exactly. the shadow aspects too. Exactly. That's why they're so riveting, exactly. right? Such a riveting form of media. Yeah, no, and I, you know, I think back, uh, you know, we were going to talk about Joseph Campbell and uh, the hero's journey, obviously, it's so important to all of this, uh, to really help bring those examples to light of how we can see these archetypes in all different myths throughout the world. What a great thing he did for humanity, right? Um, You look at uh, George Lucas, who wrote Star Wars, you know, that's a great, it's an amazing movie to see all the different archetypes and to see them play play out as you know a movie series and to see Luke grow and work through a bunch of different archetypes. Right, he kind of starts. He goes through like an outlaw phase. Um, you know, he he really grows into a certain uh, a certain type of person. And I think that's what is very important to understand is that uh, we're we're all these archetypes. Also, like you said, we're, like you know, uh, we're all the people in the movie. We have the capacity to to act as any of these archetypes at any time in our life and it might be important to actually act as what you might think of as a negative archetype perhaps Mm. at one point of your life maybe you do need to be a rebel at some point in your life and that doesn't mean you necessarily need to be a teenage angst rebel maybe you need to be a rebel when you're in your 60s based on the job that you're doing or whatever you're going on in your life right whatever point you're at and wherever you are psychologically because these archetypes are fulfilling psychological needs psychological desires that we have as human beings and um you know now we're talking about the 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 mental constructs of feeling and we're not going to get very far you know because mm-hmm. this is where it becomes very personalized very subjective when we talk about feelings and how people feel you know and maybe someone feels like they're uh you know an outlaw uh, for a different reason than someone else if we're bringing in the 16 personality types of the myers-briggs test right there's mm-hmm. an intuitive extrovert and then there's um a more feeling-based extrovert is that the other one I believe? um each of the qualities has a either an introverted or extroverted aspect so the introvert okay. and extrovert is primary. So there's like an introverted feeling type, there's an extroverted feeling type. And what that essentially means um, is that that energy of that feeling or thinking is either based on the subjective contents, meaning like mind, images, thoughts, or it's based on external stimuli. That's like the fundamental um, division. Um, That's an important division. You brought up the kind of, even the shadow size of the archetypes. So a question for some brain food. What are the dangers of not understanding archetypes? All right. Well, we might as well go to Mr. Young on this one, right? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> talked a lot about this. Um, Plato didn't really talk about this. He, he told you, he basically was almost like advising you to be like um, Icarus and fly towards the sun. Mm. But was he not? Was he not saying go fly towards the archetypes? You don't want to be involved with these copies, these images in the world. These are all fake and phony, and you'll be, you know, devoid of the truth and ignorant. Fly towards the archetypes. Yeah, um, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it, it's kind. There's kind of this division between how 
Plato viewed the forms or the archetypes and Carl Jung, because Carl Jung's theory was much more like embodied, like the archetypes were actually part of our psychic structure and they led to how we acted. But for Plato, it seemed more like the archetypes were like these like essential things that like existed in some sphere and that we could like come in contact with them. But I don't think that like he said anything along the lines of like, you know, the person who knows the good archetype is actually like expressing like they are the good. I don't think that there was like some kind of identity aspect to the, but they were almost very um, impersonal, the archetypes. Yes. So Plato was missing that transcendent function that Jung brings in. And the trans, Mm. so excuse me, the transcendent function is a very important piece of terminology in the Jungian philosophy. It basically is the third force. It's the thing that kind of unites the two, two uh, forces there's the initial force there's the reactionary force and then there's like the growth of those two things coming together um and so i think that's kind of what plato was missing and that's why plato didn't think about embodying the archetypes the same way that young did you know young saw it as a very real process where plato almost saw it as like um as if we were like dolls or something hollow you mm. know um, in our, uh, i don't yeah it's it's hard to say with plato with what he thought about the arc uh you know the forms because the forms, you know, some people say the forms aren't the archetypes. You know, I'm reading a book right now called The Platonic Forms, where the author is arguing that they are, you know, essentially the same thing. And she tries to draw a lot of comparisons as to why that is. Um, I think it's fair to make that connection there and say that Plato's forms and Jung's archetypes are within the same ballpark of each other. Right. I think, in essence, they're the same idea, but they're colored by the times that they lived in. Because, sure. I mean, Plato... Platonic philosophy basically becomes Christianity to a large extent. And um, Carl Jung comes up in a tradition of, you know, science. And he he studied to be a medical doctor for many years and practiced medicine. And then he went into psychiatry. So, like, he comes from almost like the biological aspect. Aristotelian. Right. But also... (laughs) Also, he's more of a Platonist. He's more of a Platonist. Like Aristotelian Platonist. He uses he uses like Aristotelian techniques, but like he's really a Platonist at heart for sure. But that's what makes him good. I think that's and I hate to be the you know I hate to be judgmental here, but how dare you be a judgment type? (laughs) I think it's good to have a Platonist heart and an Aristotelian mind because Mm. you wanna you wanna be rational. I think in your pursuit, you know, you want to be scientific if you are going to be a mystic. You know, mm. because if you have a mystic heart, that's a good thing to guide you. You want it to be your compass, but your mind should be very disciplined. And I think, you know, that's something we both understand, you know, because if your mind is just, you know, lets your, your heart run everything, you might not get where you want to get. You might mm. not be able to like aim, aim your arrow as straight as you want to be. It takes discipline. You also have to, you know, uh, you can't just let your heart run free, I would mm. say. Another uh, interesting point that Carl Jung made about the archetypes is that different archetypes become more important as you enter different stages of life. So like, so like in early life, there's like a certain myth that corresponds to it in middle life. There's another myth. And then in late life, there's yet another myth that explains this is a roadmap of how you can get through the fundamental human sufferings, the fundamental human struggles that are so universal that, they became stories um, of like working with these fundamental energies of the psyche. Um, Because not too long ago, if you didn't know how to overcome these things, 
it would lead to your death, actually. It was actually necessary for survival. If you couldn't embody the warrior archetype to some extent, you were less, less likely to survive combat because you would be fearful and being fearful would basically shut you down and lead to your demise. Whereas taking on that like Hercules type of overcoming um, was you know, more likely to help you out. Yes, no, that makes sense. That makes good sense there. I think you look at Sparta, I don't think you'd be able to survive uh, unless you had that, you know, that sort of warrior mindset embedded in you. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of great philosophers that never lived past the age of seven in Sparta. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the philosophy of the sword. Yeah, no, I, well, that's, you know, but there is a philosophy to the sword. You know, All right. Sun Tzu would agree. So let's dive in now into this idea of like genetic and ancestral memory. Sure. And then we'll peel back right into the archetypes and see if we can link <laughs> those two ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good idea. So uh, basically I was doing a little bit of research and I found, uh, thankfully through a friend of mine uh, who's, who studied philosophy up here at great old SUNY New Paltz upstate, if we have any hawks out there listening in. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, little, little call. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Basically, there's this guy named Henri Bergson, uh, who her old professor, my friend's old professor, was studying um, about the basically philosophy of memory. And memory is such an important thing when we're studying history, right? Because why do we write things down? Because we know that our minds will forget them. Even the greatest mind at some point, if they don't forget them, they will not, you know, they will pass away physically and they will, you will, we will only have what's been imparted by them. And what happens is when you take someone's word for something, you know, two people might see it differently and interpret what someone said very differently. I think back to the book, uh, it's with the seagulls. Uh, what is it, that book called? Uh, Stephen, no, not Stephen Siegel. Uh, <laughs> what was, I know what you're talking about. Um, Steven, John Siegelson or something. Jonathan oh, Siegel? Or what was, what yeah, was it? Something, something, the great life of Jonathan, Jonathan Siegel. Siegelston. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! But I remember I was reading I was reading this book on the beach too. I swear, and uh, it was it, it's it's a perfect book because basically there's a seagull who like wants to fly really fast, and all the other you know seagulls are like, we don't fly fast. We stay by the shore and we make sure we get our fish. And you're crazy. You're going to waste all your energy flying fast all day long. Stop doing that. And by doing this, this one seagull, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, I think that's his name now. Livingston. I was yeah, that was that was coming <laughs> into my mind too. Outfitting, right? Yeah. He's the one who's, um, or eventually he gets a following where people are just drawn to him because they're like, he's doing things differently. We want to do this too. It's making us feel alive to not just do what we've always done and to go against the, the ancestral memory, if you will, right? So they all start flying fast and then there's this big, you know, basically he becomes their leader. They all, you know, want to be like him, right? Right. Eventually he dies and the people after him now have to carry on the legacy. And let's just say that, you know, there's only so long that you can carry on a legacy after someone goes, unless there is someone who can really genuinely either carry on that same legacy or, uh, you know, imbibe it with their own values to, to bring it to some, to a new place. And I think that's what happened with Plato, right? Is that he was read by some of those early Christians who honestly, we just talked about this beforehand, uh, you know, were pretty good. And I think on the point and mystical and rational mystics, right? They weren't getting caught up in dogma just yet. Um, I think they looked at Plato as someone who made sense and someone that we could utilize to, to convince people to be good 
and uh, to have a little more of a disciplined mindset versus one that maybe is hedonistic or Dionysian. And let's be real, these cults were a thing back then. People were definitely indulging in some of the more violent and hedonistic uh, desires of humanity. I think we don't even know much about that. We talk about that with the, the Mayans or the Aztecs uh, in particular, right, who are doing human sacrifice. And we look at that and we joke about it, but I don't know if we've really come to terms with that. Mm. Yeah, I I, I, that's that's weird, right? That yeah, I don't to each other. I don't think we have, and it's interesting too that they these less uh, savory aspects of human life were mythologized, and they were made almost into kind of gods, which gave them almost a kind of legitimacy of expression, which obviously led to terrible things, but also led to integrated humans on the on the same level, right? Well, yeah, if you think about it, those people that were being sacrificed sometimes wanted to be sacrificed. Like, that's why you played the ball game in the Aztec civilization. You wanted to win, so you could winning meant being sacrificed. They thought it was an honor. And that ties mm-hmm. in, you know, with the Jesus myth and other other examples. You know, not just Jesus, Mithras, all these sacrificing uh, deities, if you will. Right, right. So uh, getting uh, back to the dangers of the archetype. So if you don't understand them, they can completely take over your mind and your psyche because they function almost um, as like autonomous self-moving entities within your psyche. So that's where something like megalomania comes from is an over-identification with like a God archetype or something until one becomes so blinded that they actually believe that they are that God that is actually just an aspect of their psyche or the universe or whatever you believe, Uh, but that they identify with it and then, obviously, great atrocities get committed. Right. I was just going to say, this happens to cultures, too. This, yeah. this doesn't happen to just individuals, because then, indiv- or, or rather, the, the collective gets swayed by an individual, and that mm-hmm. can lead to those, those uh, disasters that you speak of. Mm. What, is, um, what is a time in your life where you feel like you were very lost, but reading about some myth or some archetype brought you out of it? Mm. Well, this is going to sound cliche, but I'm going to say the Red Book, man. Mm. Uh, hands down, because of where I was in my life and the when it came to me. That's what did it. It wasn't even necessarily, I mean, what's in the book is incredible, but it was what I was going through that made it so potent. That what I was reading was literally walking me through the same sort of experiences that Jung was having, you know? Mm. Um, so it was basically, I was an undergraduate. I was probably... 20-ish years old and like from my years of 20 to 23 24 even I was very much in the process of being molded you know and going through that hard transformation like a diamond undergoes you know uh, deep within the processes of the earth and so I think that book was able to in, in a mythical kind of way it was able to just tell me that what I was what I was personally going through was just as important as what this person was seeing, even though what this person was dealing with was all within his own mind. Mm. But he was seeing how the things going on within his own mind were reflective of what was going on outside in the world between everyone else. Right. Yeah. So that's the craziest thing. And I think that's where the archetypes, that's where they really find their purpose, like you said, in the bridging. How are they making mm. their pathway down here? If we can really reflect on how these archetypes make their way down, that could alter our behavior, 
And then once again, that's how history can inform us of sound psychology. We have to see the way that we've done things and the, you know, the, the way that we go about, even just in our own personal lives, to reflect on how we act. It'll make us so uh, much better people. And it doesn't mean we can always know. I think it's good to listen to other people. They might see our flaws, potentially. You know, I could say for sure that there are times that my girlfriend in particular will call something out at me that I wouldn't have seen if I wasn't, you know, uh, told of it. And obviously when she tells me, I'm a little embarrassed because I'm like, wow, I wish I realized that I was being such a, you know, such a, the negative aspects of the king. I was being like a tyrant, right? In the mm. way I was acting or expressing myself like that particular archetype. And so it's funny, you know, we still have, even when we have the best intentions to try and, uh, you know, be a sound, balanced individual, we still need to be cautious because uh, we can grow those blind spots that then lead, like you said, to people over-identifying with certain archetypes, not realizing it, and then uh, potentially, you know, that leads to negative consequences for the people around them or the person themselves. I would uh, I would echo that statement of the Red Book. Um, I actually did a reading of I think about ten of the chapters on this podcast. Um, doing a good thing. That book also came to me during a time where I was, I felt very lost. This was uh, during my early years uh, studying philosophy in undergrad. And sounds like we had the same problem. <laughs> yeah. And same I think, time it, period. exactly. And I think it's the, it's the fundamental problem of like, you see how the world is and you see all that's wrong with it. And you don't really know who you are. Yeah. And you're just kind of confused and you're in this, um, period of time where you're trying to pave out a road for yourself, but there's no certainty at all. In it. And I, I was feeling a lot of basically what the shamanic traditions call loss of soul and reading that book. I mean, I was in a pretty dark place and I started reading it and tears came almost instantly. And I was like, wow, somebody else had the exact same experience. And there's something beautiful about reading a story and seeing that the problem that you think that you have because you think there's something wrong with you is actually mm -hmm. something that is present for all humans and something they struggle with. And that gives a sense of um, kind of camaraderie with amongst all humans that we all suffer these same struggles, these same defeats, uh, the death of loved ones, et cetera, that are echoed throughout these mythical stories as a reminder of like, hey, people before you have faced these issues. And this is how they overcame those issues. This is how the hero acts in that situation. This is right. what so, can happen if you don't act properly. You can just go into a descending spiral and that happens. That's the yeah. descendants of the underworlds. But you want to come back right. up from the underworld also. Exactly. So the fact that you're even realizing that you're in this crisis is the first step because you're entering the underworld and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? This is the end. And then there have to be people that say, no, 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 this is actually just the beginning. And honestly, a good friend of mine, uh, my friend John, uh, you know, he very introverted type of personality. He's a Pisces, you know, if you're into astrology. So he really hones that very emotional guy. Um, he, he, when I was going through these moments as well, when I read the red book, he was the person that was saying like, Hey, what you're going through is completely normal. You're having this, you know, you're kind of growing into yourself psychically, if anything, or psychologically you're maturing. Um, and that you need to have that sort of crisis in order to actually put in the effort to change. Cause the way that you live in the outside world, uh, affects how you, 
are internally are psychologically. So you need to have habits. You need to like develop habits and do things in your day-to-day life. And those things change you within. It can't just be like, I'm going to think a certain way and that's going to make me a different person. You need to actually put that to action as well um, and do it as often as possible to instill those sorts of habits. So that's kind of how we can embody the archetypes in a positive way, right? Is if we try to use them as motivators uh, to, to sculpt us into the type of person that we want to be. They're almost like cookie cutters. That's how I would explain it to the kids. You know, mm. um, they're the molds that we fit into in some ways uh, at times, but we don't want to get stuck in that mold. We want to move at flow between the different ones when the time comes for certain archetypes uh, to be called upon. In essence, they're called upon. By us, we call upon them, and they call upon us in some ways. Mm. As uh, Jordan Peterson calls them in one of his great books, uh, maps of meaning, that they give you a map of the terrain. And I would like to uh, point out that we think of archetypes and even mythological stories, movies, as being something like abstract, right? Because you see, you know, the hero slaying a dragon and getting the gold that's stored there, and we think, oh, that's that's interesting. It had such an emotional resonance with me, but I'm not fighting any dragons. I'm, mm. you know, I just uh, have a nine to five and but, but that's, <laughs> but that's the thing, but that's the thing. You are fighting dragons. They're just the not nine to five. Is dragons. The dragon. it, right. Your, uh, your, your boss could be the dragon. Your, uh, the conversation that you're not having with a loved one could be the dragon that you're afraid of. And as the more you fear it, the bigger it becomes, it becomes stronger through, um, through turning a blind eye to it. And these myths of like slaying the dragon are essentially the fundamental myth of a human realizing their own weakness, realizing their own flaws and their capacity for evil. And instead of being at their whim and just going along with those bad aspects of actively taking the stance of, no, I will actively move into what I'm afraid of. I will actively try to overcome it. And that's incredibly empowering. If we, if we think of ourselves like that, we don't usually think of the challenges in our lives as these mythical things, but to our minds, they are like, you know, that, that thing that's being avoided, that work that's being avoided. It is like a dragon that we, we refuse to slay and now it's destroying the whole kingdom, aka our psyche. It's destroying our whole mind. And what's there past that dragon? You know, it's this dark beast. Um, but the dragon is held to reside over this great treasure of gold. And what it, what is what is the meaning of that? I think what that is is only through facing those shadow aspects of yourself and coming to terms with the realities, the realness of life, including the darker aspects you find the light, like through the darkness, you find the light. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very enigmatic because usually we think of, you know, oh, how can I be happy? How can I live a good spiritual life? It's a, think of positive things, stay in the light, but it's like, that's part of it. But what about the things that are? What about the things that actually are that we're like, oh no, that's not me. Or, oh no, like mm-hmm. that we reject parts of ourselves, mm-hmm. we reject parts of people. And we think that they'll just go away if we just ignore them. And yep. in fact, they don't. Shadows grow with more darkness, less awareness on them. Yeah, I'll just say very quick, I don't want to get too snarky here. But, you know, <laughs> before, uh, <laughs> snark, before snark. Uh, you know, yeah, a snark, snark, here we go. Uh, before, <laughs> you know, all this began, you know, uh, with the 
quarantine and whatnot, have you, uh, you know, I saw this coming in some ways because of what happened in China. And so at the end of the day, a lot of people that I ended up talking to about this were kind of, uh, if they didn't, you know, kind of poo poo it, they would almost like, in a sense, like in a hush, like be like, why are you bringing this up again? You know what I mean? Um, I feel like that was the general sort of response that I would get. And it's like, I don't know, like I'm bringing it up because it's there. And it's a part of us now, you know, and uh, I'd love to ignore it. God, I, every day I go to bed and I, you know, I, I go to sleep thinking that it's gone. It'll be gone, you know, because I want to be optimistic. I'm definitely not. I'm, I notice I'm most optimistic at night, which is interesting, um, even though I, I am optimistic when the day begins. But when the day begins, you feel like you have your whole day to attend to. You got to like, oh, man, I got to do these things. I want to I want to have a good day because I know I'm, a, you know, I'm trying to mold myself into the best person I can be. But that brings a little bit of pressure, which is good because you want to have the motivation to do things, but it can also weigh you down, which is the, the pitfall of that. So, right. Well, yeah. there's a, there's an elaboration on this, continuing on this myth of dragons is that not every dragon is your dragon. Like you have your own mm-hmm. dragons. For sure, some sure. people, the situation is their dragon that they need to face their fear, their anxiety. For other people, their dragon is different. Like, I'll tell you what my dragon is. Um, my dragon is chaos. Very enigmatic. Oh, my God. <laughs> but what it literally means is if one does not confront the chaos, like, with courage, one goes into complete disarray. And let me bring this down into human terms. If you have a whole free day, and you have nothing planned for yourself and you do nothing, you will default to the worst aspects of yourself. You will default to hedonism, overeating. You'll just start Netflix binging. That's the default mode network of chaos. And this isn't to say that you shouldn't have fun, right? But the question is, at the end of the day, if you feel like absolute shit and that you did nothing, you're right. Like (laughs) your mind is telling you that you fucked up within your own estimation of yourself and that the only way to be at harmony with oneself and bring that kind of order element and fight that dragon of chaos, which we've kind of been hurled into, right? Because, you know, for people who aren't working now, for people who are students, suddenly they went from, you know, being busy from like 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. or something, uh, something like that to suddenly it's just like, Vroom, do whatever you want. And there's no instruction of what you should do. So it's like you have to generate it from within yourself. And the a reason lot that, of people are growing right now, uh, you know, in the sense, I mean, we're all growing right now. I shouldn't or say devolving that, or devolving. Yeah. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to be uh, a, give a positive spin here in the sense that, mm. yeah, well, okay. Well, you obviously devolving is positive in this sense, right? Cause they're, they're, mm-hmm. re, they're unlearning, they're unlearning the, the, the regular ways of doing things and now trying to figure out a new way of being. It's fascinating, fascinating times we're living in. Mm. Uh, it, it could be a renaissance, honestly. I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful right now. We could be headed towards a real renaissance of thought uh, and idea and culture and art and music and everything. I, I'm trying to be very optimistic. I think it's possible. Um, but we do need to be aware of those shadow aspects because if we're not, then I don't know if we'll have a renaissance. I think it's very important that we acknowledge these darker parts of ourselves now while we still can right. and put it into the light of truth and you know we have a relatively free media and whatnot i feel like the time is now for uh really trying to say we're going to have a better world we're going to have leaders that we can trust and you know things won't be as shadowy <laughs> as mm. they've been well that yeah that's that's uh that's a good point to stay on the 
optimism side of the spectrum, but also optimism requires action. And what action can we take other than our own self-action, right? So it's like, yes, there might be a renaissance, but for, for me, my only concern is how can I have a renaissance? Like, what can I do from within myself to, to make best use of this time uh, in the hopes that when other people see it, they'll also be inspired to do the same thing. Um, and I think that's how really a renaissance happens. It's yes. although we are a collective society, the individuals are who inspire movements and who inspire positivity uh, or uh, things like that. So I think it's going to be both. It's going to be chaos and disarray. And it's also going to be a time of renaissance. And it, it really depends where you are. Like for one person, it'll be like a terrible time and might be almost even crippling to some degree. And for other people, it'll be the time of their greatest creativity. So it's never, um, oh, and that could differ based on days too. Like one day it could be one, the other. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, even the most creative people, I'm sure having uh, flat days now and then, you know, especially when you do have so much time and you're not getting as much inspiration. Let's say you're someone who likes to go out and, you know, hear the birds to write your, (laughs) your saxophone pieces. Like you might be having a tough time if you're living in the middle of a city right now you know what i'm saying so um that's a good point uh what you what you just said over here um no i'm trying to I'm trying to work this back now to that memory thing we were talking about before mm-hmm. because i feel like just to help us um understand how we can like unlearn things because you were talking about devolving just now right and how maybe the mm-hmm. process of devolving in this moment is good for some people if they're releasing some of the shadow aspects and i think we're all learning something. We all have these things that have been thrown upon us. If you you know want to say uh, genetic, our genetic memory, uh, our ancestors, the way we've been raised, also the you know our biology, the things that we've inherited physically. Um, these things could all be uh, tough to work with, and so we we almost have to come to terms with our physicality mentally, and we have to come to terms with our mental state physically. Okay, and the mm-hmm. reason I say that is because it's uh, it's important to understand if we're in a state of stress. Uh, mentally that could lead to physical uh, problems. And obviously, you know, not treating our physical body right can also lead to a pollution of the mind. So I'm just saying this like to start off with the paradoxes real quick, just because that's kind of where we're going with this, because we talked about this a little bit before. So I mentioned this guy, Henri Bergson, you know, uh, he's, uh, he was a French philosopher in the 19th century. He lived until 1941. He was Jewish. So he pretty much uh, died right before the end, or rather the end of, uh, you know, France before it became Vichy France when the Nazis invaded. And uh, so basically he had a philosophy of memory, okay? And he believed that like ultimately kind of like Carl Jung, that intuition was kind of the the, the main uh, goal uh, or the highest form of memory, right? The archetypal knowledge is kind of the, uh, the, the, the roots of everything in a sense, all right? And that's how we can be our most scientific is if we're looking for the roots uh of of anything really of causes of ideas of philosophies whatever it is so he has these two concepts of memory one of them is uh automatic memory or implicit memory and the other is explicit uh memory Mm -hmm. which he calls pure memory and uh, basically to keep this as simple as possible okay is that implicit memory is something that's more mechanical it's more of a physical it's like inscribed in the body he says it's Mm -hmm. like a habit a repetition like so something that we do so I mean, even something as base as, you know, drinking water, like knowing how to swallow correctly, uh, you know, even, even, uh, even being potty trained is very much an automatic memory in some ways now because we've had 
we've learned how to hold it in. Animals don't necessarily do that in the same way that we do. Um, so kind of so, like an experiential or a muscle memory type of deal. Yes, muscle memory is a good way to put it. Um, but what's interesting is that we were talking about how this is almost like a priori physical memory mm-hmm. in a sense. So I just want to bring that up because uh, we're going to contrast this with, with explicit memory for a moment. And this is where, this is more like what, what the study of history is, is we're looking past, it's almost like image remembrance, right? Events, uh, people who existed. It's something that our mind is using to rehash uh, essentially uh, consciousness and experience uh, to help us identify with where we are presently and to understand uh, our place uh, in time. Right. In some ways, uh, you can need to know that as uh, as basically as when you're, you know, uh, farming and, and you want to know what time of year it is. That's why the ancients went so far with uh, the, the eclipses uh, and also with the equinoxes and the solstices to know those times of year. And those are almost like, uh, in essence, they would have those celebrations to make an explicit memory. Right. Mm. Of, of a very important thing that's going on uh, so that, you know, implicitly they could be very safe. Mm. <laughs> so their physical bodies could survive. They were, you know, creating a collective memory, in essence, of important times of the year to know mm. what to do then. So they're almost setting the stage. That's uh, a really uh, that way. That's a really uh, key thing in the more magical traditions um, where they believe that by acting out these uh, ritual myths, you can embody them and learn from them because only through action in a lot of ways is something imprinted. And um, we really have a lack of initiations within society at large for a coming of age. I mean, there's still some remnants of traditions from different religions, but they're not like they used to be uh, and still are in some tribal societies where you know, becoming a man is its whole own ritual and it's incredibly intense. Like it brings the person who is to become a man face to face with the ultimate dragon, which is death. Like either they'll send them off without food um, into the woods on like a vision quest and say, don't come back until you see so-and-so and and people will die from that. Uh, Or they'll be like a, a ritual attack of that person from everybody in the tribe and they have to kind of just endure it and not be afraid. Um, so I, I like the point that you, you made know, about the very memory quick. acting it out. Yeah. 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 No, um, I just want to say very quick, cause I had another example there to throw in. There's one mm-hmm. where uh, I think the child has to put their hands into like a red ant hive. Oh yeah. Or right. Or like into ant holes and they have to just get like bitten and that's like their rite of passage. So it's true what you said about, you know, it's teaching about death. And I think, yeah, like implicit memory. So the explicit memories are kind of creating that, that, or rather the, uh, this is, uh, excuse me, now I'm changing it up a little bit, but I guess the, impl- the, the action, the creating of a habit would be in, uh, an implicit memory, right? But you can create implicit memories through, uh, explicit memories essentially so things that happen to you the experiences you have influenced your your base your physicality in in essence obviously this you could think of this in a way that you hurt your arm you break your arm it needs to heal your arm might not be the same as it was you know again because ultimately it's relearning your arm is relearning based on an experience that happened to it how to function normally again in its in its habit right and that's maybe not the best example but um you know Ultimately, uh, I think where you get the collective 
uh, cultural awareness is, is basically um, because you've had experiential or, or rather explicit memory, things that have happened to you, you're recalling events, the events that have happened to people, these things mold our identity of who we are. And I think that's the key thing of this philosophy here that is try we're trying to get at and why studying history is important is because it really helps to mold the identity of, of who you are. Um, and it doesn't need to be a particular any nation or culture. It's more so the fact that you're a human and you've experienced human things like other humans have. And that's kind of what the Red Book does a good job of, at least in the psychic sense, right? So, um, you know, it's important to have mental memory. It's also important to have physical memory and to learn how to, you know, do things physically in this life. And I think what we want to do is merge the mind and body. I think that's the key here. So I think that's kind of that's the goal of understanding how both of those memories work. And that's kind of where the transcendent function comes in for, for Dr. Jung is that he's all about bringing, embodying the archetypes. We need to, to physically be aware uh, or come into contact with them in order to, I guess, to transcend them, but also integrate them, right? Because he's all mm. about integration. What is the key difference between implicit and explicit memory? If you could uh, sum it up sure. in one juicy morsel for us. Yeah, yeah, you got it, man. So I would say that in, implicit memory, okay, uh, is more so based in like rote memorization. So if you're, if you're actually memorizing like a verse or a song, right, you're just like doing it. You're doing it over and over again. It's more action-based. Like procedural like memory. Physical, yeah, physical action-based, okay? And then explicit memory would be more mental. Like you're actually recalling the time when you were physically learning that verse, Right. When you were physically playing it over and over again, now I'm thinking back, oh, yeah, I remember that I practiced that song for, you know, a few months in fifth grade in order to be in the school play. Right. Or something mm. like that. You know what I, I mean? So mm. go ahead, I have yeah. an example that might fit into this. Um, Please. Into this. this for, in terms, this is, yeah. Right. Um, so explicit memory, an example of it. There's this phenomena within um, within healing uh, healthcare and, and things like that, where it's called secondary trauma. And what that means is, you know, somebody comes to you and you're a healer, maybe you're a psychiatrist, psychologist, or anything like that. And they basically share this incredibly traumatic event with you. And the event is so intense and so deep that you actually become traumatized just from the very hearing of it. Or you hear about a tragedy that happened somewhere else and it causes you to have um, like a traumatic experience. So is that a more of an example of like explicit memory? So it's like um, yes. you have like a memory of like an external thing that happened and now it becomes like an implicit. Yes, memory. it becomes implicit because you're, you're reacting to it because it's mm. created a visceral response in you. So mm. that's this is kind of the challenge here. We were talking about this, how like, something visceral means that it comes to you like, or, or it's, it's innate, right? It's instinctual. So instinctual becomes a priori in this case. Um, I don't know if you want to give a pre brief little saying on what a priori and a posteriori are necessarily. Um, yeah, I think, I think that would that. be, that would be helpful. Uh, yeah. So we both study philosophy. So those are terms that are always thrown around in philosophy uh, circles. Latin. Yeah. <laughs> those Latin, those Latin people. Um, but yeah, so a priori is basically, it's an understanding that is almost like innate. It comes from before, like it, like an archetype is a, in a sense, a kind of a priori knowledge, because it's not like you learn about the archetype. It exists before you learn about it. 
and a posteriori is uh, what you learn through experience, like knowledge of uh, from experiences you had, from things you learned. Um, for example, uh, a priori knowledge instincts are a good example of a priori knowledge because um, when you know a baby touches something really hot, like it just pulls its hand away. There's like it doesn't have to learn to pull its hand away. It has a priori knowledge of everything associated with like the whole uh, circuit is wired in such a way that you feel pain and it pulls back. It's not something that, you know, or how to breathe or something like that. That's a priori knowledge. Right. The way to look at it to remember it too, is that it's prior. So before things yeah. that, are, that are innate and posts, which are after. So that's literally what, what it means probably in Latin, right? Well, yeah, but this is what mm-hmm. gets me Bogdan, is that like you think about um, a posteriori and, uh, Oh man, I just lost it. Hold on. I was I was going with um. More, we can fix this, right? You yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to fix. So, that. I don't do edits, but let's. Yeah, yeah. Um, what were you? Uh, what were you uh, just talking about before this? The last thing you said, because that'll bring me back. Uh yeah, the a priori knowledge of like the child sticking their hand in the fire and. The, okay. Yes. Thank you. So a posteriori with the body, okay, I always thought of instincts as being stuck in the body or as being uh, part of the body. And to me, the body is a posteriori because I'm thinking of it in the Kantian sense. I not even like Kant, but that's the way he thinks of it is that the mind is a priori and the body is a posteriori. I mean, in a sense, that's the way I look at it. I mean, I'm sure there are parts of the mind that he sees as being a posteriori, but to me, those are the senses. Mm. You know what I mean? That are just interpreting aspects of the mind. So I don't know the way I look at it, uh, that always confuses me because I think of the mind as being a priori, but in this case with implicit memory, a priori is actually your instincts, which are more of a physical Mm. body based thing. Where do archetypes fit into this memory scheme? Are they implicit Uh, memory or are they just said it before you just said it before. It sounds like they're more explicit, but I think they're, they definitely merge both. That's the whole point of this is that, you know, they're, they're, they're living as well, as much as they are abstract and something that we reference, they're living through us at the same time. So they bridge a priori, a posteriori, just like we do. Mm. <laughs> That's the whole point of this conversation is that it's, we can't get by with just either or. We need both types of memory to be functioning human beings. And you can't be too uh, reaction, reactionary as a human being mm-hmm. and not use your mind. You can't also get too caught up in your mind because then you won't use your body. And that's, it's uh, unhealthy either way if you overdevelop one end or the other. Mm. There's this um, idea in myth that I think is very helpful for understanding why myths and learning history are actually important to our living our lives. And that's the myth of the Arthurian legends, which is um, the father gets turned into stone and like sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And there's a sword that's stuck in that. Um, and the hero's journey is actually to bring that father back to life and pull that uh, sword out of the stone. And that's a very mythological motif that doesn't seem to mean anything. But what some people have pointed out, which I find really interesting is that it symbolizes how to be fully integrated within society you have to go back into the past. That's like the stone of the father because the father is, um, you can think of it in terms of like the patriarchy or something uh, with all the societal traditions, beliefs and all that. Um, We have to dive back into that 
and bring it back to life in these current times. And that's what allows us to pull the sword from the stone or basically have true integration and self-responsibility of our own lives and true um, influence and control over what happens in our sphere. But first, it's like we need to understand the myths and the archetypes um, in a way that they can be living now because that's the thing about archetypes is in a sense, they are a living, a living aspect of the psyche. They aren't like these like static things that just like exist in that sense that Plato talked about the forms as being these things, but um, they could be argued to be constantly evolving along with us too. Um, these yes. notions. Oh, yes. That's the key. The evolving part is key because I think that's the problem with Plato is that he probably viewed them as a little more static and that we're just like, you know, we're just playing them out. They're not really changing. We're just, we're the ones that are being played by the forms in, in essence, uh, we're their tools. But I think Jung obviously was giving us a lot more agency and telling us that, no, we help evolve these things. And we do, I think we totally do. Uh, I think it's important for us to, to, feel okay with uh, embodying a certain archetype at a certain time of their lives. And honestly, I think I'm going to make a jump here. I'm going to go with a myth uh, that we talked about before. So um, I think an important, and this is not necessarily an archetype, like a personality archetype you can think of, but see how a myth uh, can help inform us as like something that Mm -hmm. happened in the past that can show us a pattern that's happening now so that we can maybe not do the same exact thing that the people did in the past. Right. So I'm going to bring up Atlantis. Mm. And obviously, you know, uh, everyone's probably heard of Atlantis, but we all don't really know too much about it, right? I, I so. love talking about Atlantis and ancient civilizations. And what still blows my mind is that I believe the first mention ever of Atlantis actually comes from one of Plato's works, for people who don't uh, know that. And in so the please bugs, enlighten it? us on the ancient civilizations, because whether or not they're literally existed, they tell a myth of what can go wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't even matter. So like, who cares if ancient <laughs> aliens, right? It doesn't even matter if they existed or not. It really doesn't because uh, we can still learn from them and still not do what they did. I'm just um, thinking of think, that uh, that Greek guy on the show. You know, we were joking around before. What's his name? Tsukalos? Where you go? Tsukalos, yeah. All right, go Tsukalos on us. My Greek brother. I'm going to go Tsukalos on you guys right now, yeah. Bring it, Eric. So um, I'm glad that you brought up Plato, obviously, because that's where it all begins. And I didn't, you know, I knew about Atlantis, obviously, you know, you hear about it. It sounds like the Atlantic Ocean. You always have that connection. You just think of this city lost under the sea and the sea is mysterious, right? So it's, it's just something that, uh, you know, uh, attracts wonder from a young mind or from anyone really who's interested in history at all, right? We want to know where there's civilizations before the ones that they tell us about. We always want to know more than what they tell us. So uh, basically there was this myth called Timaeus and there was another myth um, that, or rather dialogue, one of Plato's dialogues uh, that he wrote uh, that related to, uh, or spoke of Atlantis. So in the Timaeus dialogue, which was one of, I believe, Plato's later dialogues, uh, he's talking to someone who had been to Egypt, uh, essentially, uh, and who, he was actually speaking of of the past about 60, 70 years before he was born, I believe it was Solon of Athens, who was a great uh, democratic uh, reformer in Athens. He kind of got the whole idea of voting uh, with the stones for the first time, you know, Sadaka and ostracism and all of uh, those things. So he, uh, this guy Solon visited Egypt in the 550s BC. In the 550s BC, let me tell you something. We don't, you know, we have ideas about those times, but we don't really have a, a pure vision of what they were like. That's, those are the times that I would still say 
were in a, in a sense mythical, uh, like pre-classical in a sense where you had, especially in Greece at those times, you know, uh, you had all these different pre-Socratic philosophers, right? The people that came before Plato. And a lot of them were mystical. Uh, they, they were all scientific in their own way, but a lot of them were still very mystical and were doing a lot of their work up here, you know, and in that world rather than the physical world, which, you know, maybe was good or bad. Who knows what was going on then exactly. But you had the Buddha around that time, you know, Siddhartha Gautama, you got Confucius. So it's an interesting time in the world. Uh, Zarathustra, Zoroaster in Persia. Um, so... Let me not get too caught up in the time period. So basically, uh, Timaeus, all right, in this dialogue, what you learn about from Atlantis is that they were a civilization. And, and, and who's telling Plato the story, by the way? It's the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the ones that know this story and are telling him, informing him of what Atlantis was. And some people say that Atlantis was a colony of Egypt, or rather, sorry, uh, Egypt was a colony of Atlantis, okay? Uh, this great ancient civilization. And that's, you know, people like to use that uh, theory to connect the pyramids, obviously, that they're much older than uh, they say there are. And there is, there does seem to be some uh, artifact, artifactual evidence there uh, that that is the case, that the pyramids might be much older than they say they are, and they might have served many purposes beyond just housing dead pharaohs. Uh, you know, so that's just the thing to put out there if anyone wants to go down there. Right. Well, what's, so, what's that, interesting yeah, about the Atlantis myth is that as Plato's being told it, it's already ancient to him and Plato's yes. ancient to us. And um, that's what the Egyptians tell him mm-hmm. is that ultimately this is so ancient. So if Plato's ancient to us. Imagine that, that history then. So we're not going to know any more about Atlantis than Plato did. If anything, you should trust Plato that he probably knew a little bit more than we do now. Right. right. So the things he tell us, tells us are fascinating. And ultimately what he gets to is that, Atlantis was destroyed, you know, not necessarily because of just a tidal wave from nature, which is is definitely a possibility. It could have been something outside of humanity's control. But there is a theme that technology of some sort also brought down Atlantis. And this is not unheard of. In the Ramayana, which is uh, the ancient text, uh, Hindu text, it talks about nuclear wars that occurred in like 3700, maybe even earlier than that. I want to say like 3700 BC, they give a time frame for that. And we usually know that like history didn't really begin in Mesopotamia until 30 300 so why are they thought to be nuclear wars what are the references uh, in there that kind of point to that uh the type of weapons that they they talk about and honestly i i'm not saying this because i watch this in ancient aliens because <laughs> they, <actually had> <laughs> they talk about the, the vimanas right the flying ships i know they there's do. like they, weird references in these um, they reference Indian everything Bug, and it's impossible well i was going to say ancient aliens they reference everything there isn't something they haven't referenced anything out in left field they'll grab it and be like aliens <laughs> extraterrestrial beings jesus was an alien yeah, so they'll, they'll they were a anything. fish species from another planet. <laughs> the one positive I'll say as a teacher is they do expose kids to things. So, you know, I think it's good if you want to watch it as like a, it's almost like theory porn. They right. just throw everything right. out at you. And it's like, all right, I guess I can take this. And well, what, what they reference are really interesting things, but the conclusions they make always point to aliens, which is not necessarily true, but it doesn't mean you that know what? points they don't bring up aren't awesome. Like the exactly. actual events. Exactly. The actual events they're exposing you to are excellent, but still, ancient astronaut theorists suggest. <laughs> ancient alien astronaut theorists. Ancient alien astronaut. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's get back into Giorgio. I love my yeah. boy, Giorgio. I don't let's want to get, him. Let's get back into Atlantis. What does it Thank teach you. us? Yeah, yeah. 
So what it teaches us, if, if we look, is if we look at the lesson that Plato gives us, is that this, that technology, some sort of technology, destroyed it. Um, the main lesson now is we have to be very wary of our technology. And there's been times throughout history, technology has been to our detriment. Okay, uh, the industrial revolution, it all begins there. That's like the big thing I used to teach kids because it helps them understand the world they're in now too, in some ways. So I bring up how people at the work in factories. Uh, they were working long hours and on unsanitary conditions, obviously not eating good diets. A lot of them slept on the premises, essentially, in a, a bunk next door to the factory. They didn't have enough money. They, they didn't have, uh, you know, they weren't, they were going to die young. They had no health care. There was no labor unions, right? So that was the advent of technology, which did help produce goods and, and created, uh, you know, the ability for a middle class to rise up and for more people to be comfortable than just the filthy rich nobles on top in the inbred bloodlines you know, <laughs> not no punches pulled there man no punches pulled there i love i love those um, references because they're real references oh man i say it to the kids all the time too they love it too they love when i say that it throws them off for a second and that's good you want to throw you want to throw people off sometimes when you're talking just for a second in the timaeus he uh plato also briefly mentions that there was many cataclysms that occurred throughout the earth and buried civilizations before. Like he talks of the two ways that it occurred um, by way of water and by way of fire. Um, and what's really interesting is we have these myths of these like biblical floods that occurred, that there was people who lived before and the times were very different before the floods happened. Um, and then we have our own myth of the dinosaurs, right? Because we don't really know what happened, but you mean reptilians. <laughs> they're in office no <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> they're too occupied yeah in that house over there that blanco house <laughs> so the tr the trial by fire uh, i believe he called it um it seems to be like comets or something like things falling from the sky destroying large populations and it always brings up this idea of like all right imagine if like within our lifetimes, like 75% of the earth was flooded, let's say the polar ice caps just completely melted and most of civilization moved, you know, to higher ground. Um, and let's say all of our electric grids were destroyed and all sources of knowledge were pretty much lost. I mean, there was a few books here and there that people kept with them, but pretty much other than that, you know, everything was just based on memory. You know, everyone knew of these things called like cell phones, but like no one knew how to actually build one. So like, you know, they just told people about it and like, you know, go forward like 2000 years and these stories of things that actually existed might be almost kind of like myths. They might be kind of like these, oh, there used to be these, these godly devices that humans used to be able to telepathy across oceans with each other and, you know, the lost technology and, and things like that. Um, yeah, well, so right now, Elon Musk wants you to think that you have uh, the ability to have telepathy over oceans. <laughs> oh, man, sorry. I had to let that one out. No, the he's, idea uh, that, like, yeah, you good, know, man. he wants us to, he wants us to idea, you know, that, uh, or to get us comfortable with the idea that we could, you know, uh, merge with AI and have the ability to have, um, you know, to contact each other much quicker than we do, you know, in a sense that if you merge with AI, then, yeah, you can have telepathy over oceans. That's very true. That would be it, a thing. His point is kind of, I think, almost preemptive because what it seems like is he's it actually is. very he afraid says. of AI, but he is like, we better at least integrate with it or else we will have no control over it. So like, you know he's more of, in. yeah. What's that? I'm a purist. <laughs> You're a purist. <laughs> You're not going to get a chip in your brain? 
<laughs> I don't know if I can make that compromise, man. You sure, I get man? it. I get it. He's giving a compromise. <laughs> He's listen. Uh, I'm hoping that at least in this lifetime I can avoid it. <laughs> I hope you mean Lay's, man. I only eat Lay's. Yeah, of course, um, only man. Lay's. Baked Lay's. Um, Baked but Lays. yeah, back to this. Um, back to this myth of Atlantis. I think what it tells us, as you were, uh, yeah, yeah, as you yeah. Were and saying, I want to say quickly. You were saying history mm-hmm. becomes uh, history becomes myths over time. So things, it almost like it's like a right. mythologizing process. It's like the salient points. It's like there, you know, there have been kings on the earth and queens for as long as humans have been around to some extent, and they have been kind of mythologized into gods in terms of um, certain aspects of them or things that they did. Like the salient mythical parts of their experience became stories to tell other people of how you can also live a great life, let's say. Um, but these these Bible like floods and atlantis what they seem to point out is that no matter how big you get like you know tower of babel like no matter how high you get you can be destroyed and very little might exist other than just some stories and in a lot of cases those downfalls lead to hubris um, they don't lead to hubris they come from hubris right? they're, as a res- they're a result of hubris and so let right. me just say this very quickly okay and you mentioned a few things here and i'm going to piece together a few things here that i think will hopefully enlighten our listeners to something that i try to grasp all the time three piece in a soda <laughs> so here's the deal okay and i brought up atlantis and the myth and the problem the technology that could have destroyed them and now obviously cataclysms from the earth could have destroyed them as well and i'm going to talk a little bit about both of these potentials that we could face in the near uh, within our lifetimes, perhaps. So I'll start with the natural ones. Okay. Uh, basically, uh, I've mentioned this guy before on the podcast, I think in my astrological interview, um, where we talked about suspicious observers. He's an online, uh, basically, I think his wife is actually like a, uh, a PhD in, in astrophysics, and, and he's learned that on his own. He's a lawyer, so he's kind of like done this on his own. And I think it's good to be a lawyer in this day and age. It helps you to argue your point. People take you a little more seriously when you're a lawyer, it seems, right? You seem to get on uh, TV pretty easily and on the media when they want to ask you an important question. So, uh, you know, uh, ultimately, uh, with Atlantis and, and the whole idea with uh, the technology, it, it might not have been that, that that destroyed them. So to bring us back to the natural stuff, uh, basically this guy's suspicious observers. He talks about the few things that might happen to us over the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Okay, because he's seeing changes in the sun right now. And I talked a little bit about the sun last time uh, or two podcasts ago. So basically what could happen to us is that, A, the sun uh, could release a supernova or even what they're calling a micronova now. Because suns, depending on how hot they are, you know, our sun is pretty much what they call an average star, normal star, yellow star. It's not too hot, not too cold, pretty much a Goldilocks star, if you will. Uh, and ultimately, Do you mean a solar flare? Yeah, so micronova okay. is like a bigger solar flare. Like like uh, the sun, the sun flares all like not all the time. Sometimes it goes through minimums, uh, solar minimums when there's not as much flare activity. Um, the sun's not working minimums. hard enough. Someone should go talk to the sun. They're not meeting yeah, the surprised. bottom line. The minimum. I'm surprised they haven't <laughs> cut the sun's right hand off yet. You know, I'm sure they would if they could. So uh, yeah, basically, you know. Uh, 
what we have to worry about from the sun is from what this guy says is that ultimately we're seeing right now that it's uh, or they've done research that based based on things that have happened on the earth cataclysms that have happened every every year around 12,000 years on average they find mm. that there's a great cataclysm that happens and usually it's because of what they say the sun is a is a semi recurring micronova star so basically every uh like i said around an average every twelve thousand years the sun will micronova and send a huge burst of energy that you know it's not a supernova it wouldn't destroy the planet entirely mm, but it could by fire very it could very much harm the planet and so there are few there are a few things that can happen to the earth if this happens first though an indicator of this happening is a weakening uh, magnetic field on the earth that the poles start to get weak that's an indicator when this is going to happen at least that's what the scientists are saying now, is that when a geomagnetic reversal is going to happen, when the poles shift, that's indicative of the sun getting ready for a micronova. This is all cutting edge stuff right now. Okay. This wow. is like, you know, your average, your average, uh, what is it called? Black matter, uh, dark matter, uh, phys- physician, physician, physics professor or PhD dark? is not really going to get. I would, this. I would like to have a physician like that. <laughs> <laughs> they use, dark, dark they use, they use dark matter to heal. Imagine if that becomes the thing. It probably will never, but. Sorry for derailing. Uh, I don't know if it'd be the cure. I feel like it might be the opposite, but who knows? Maybe it would be the cure. Maybe a little bit of dark matter, like a little bit of yeah, uh, just a little like homeopathic dose of of dark matter will get you back. All right. So where was I? But yeah, Uh, the solar the solar flares. I mean that that's pretty terrifying. It makes me realize how fragile we are. And so first off, here's what can happen even before the flare. Because the poles are shifting and the magnetic field's weakening, you might start getting what's called crustal displacement or crustal instability. You might see more earthquakes. Um, you might even see you know, crazy earthquakes where the earth splits, kind of like that movie 2012 was trying to make people see. Um, you might also have super volcanoes go off, like with the, the one in outer Wyoming, uh, the Yellowstone National Park. Uh, so you would see a lot of things happening on the earth. The, the climate would also be becoming much more, uh, un- unstable, unpredictable as it is now, right? We're having more natural disasters than ever. And this is not happening necessarily because of what Al Gore told us because of our carbon output, uh, that could now I'm not saying that's not necessarily affecting it at all. Uh, you know, that's not my field, but, uh, ultimately we can't impact the earth as much uh, or the, the climate of the earth as much as we think we can, in my personal opinion, because I believe in the effects of what the sun is doing right now with our planet. And we're just learning about electromagnetic fields and how they're the basis for all life. So this is cutting edge science. You know, I'm not claiming to have all the answers here. I'm just telling you what I intuitively have found to, to, right. to resonate in the sense that we are seeing the poles shift right now. And we even almost know where they're going to go because we're seeing where the weakest points of the earth right now are, the polar areas. For whatever reason, uh, having done carbon dating in the past and looking at isotopes and rocks and trying to measure over the last 72,000 years when these ships have happened with the poles, um, we're seeing that the new poles usually form where the field was weakest at that point. 
So there seems, you know, this is amazing that our scientists, you know, people looking into this can understand this now to help us out. And so what tells us that we're due is, well, the last, the last ice age was definitely, I think, 18,000 years ago, if I'm not mistaken, but you started seeing the, the, the thaw around 12,000. So, you know, it's possible that that happened. Another thing with the micronova very quickly that can happen is if the micronova does happen, Aside from what happens before it with the weakening magnetic field, which is what we're dealing with right now in some ways, um, the micronova can burst. And what happens is it could hit the Earth. And there are two things that could result uh, from this micronova hitting us. Is One, the Earth could stop rotating for a period of time. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, which – yeah, which – what you can only imagine what that could lead to, and ultimately what it, what it could lead to is that a tidal wave would form. And because the Earth right now is flowing from, I mean, if we're living in the United States, right, it's flowing basically. You're moving. I'm trying to think if I was looking at it clockwise. Basically, you know, West Coast is more behind time if you look at it, but Australia is technically the beginning of time. So I don't know. You're basically moving. If you're looking at a, a, the Earth flat on, you know, from the way that we usually see it on a map, it's moving to the right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so it's moving like this. That means the earth would stop moving. Okay. And it would actually start, it, it could flip the other way. Who knows what would happen, but they're saying that it would eventually start moving again if it doesn't change its rotation, which is a possibility. And then that would create basically a tidal wave. So all the oceans would start coming into the land, which is like kind of like the floods that you were mentioning earlier. So mm. the West coast, if this happened to our world, the West Coast of the United States would experience a tidal wave because since the earth is moving the other way, if it stopped, the oceans would still move. The tides would still, very soon, would come up. Um, and if the earth started moving again the same way, the water could then recede and you might see a splashback from the Atlantic Ocean coming into the East Coast. So well, that's, an, theories. that's an archetype right there. The uh, apocalypse is what you're talking about, Shiva, basically. Shiva, the Four Horsemen, yeah. Right, so yeah, that's, no, um, the Book yeah. of Revelations is... Full I don't know text. if you've if you've read symbols. into it, but that's a scary text of all sorts of end times well, things. Not to brag, Bogdan, but I actually have read it in the ancient Greek. I'm serious. Oh, I, when wow. I was trying to I was trying to learn my Greek a little bit more. I, I got a text that I found online that had the ancient Greek along with the modern Greek and the English. So I was able to learn Greek uh, as well as you know read the book of the apocalypse with English to kind of help me out. It was so. What's it was the? Cool. Uh, it's definitely, it was cooler that way. I think. What's the gist of it? Like, what, your local church. What can we learn from this myth of these end times? So we're talking about a actual possibility. Now let's talk about what that archetype of the end times. Why that's so appealing to the human mind and what it's trying to teach us. Let's say. Sure. So I'll start with the natural stuff since I just talked about that. Those are things out of our control. It teaches us mm. not to worry about them because <laughs> there's really not too much. I mean, yes. Could you do something about it? Like you, like you were saying before, like we could live on higher ground, right? If you really are worried about this happening and honestly, there will be signs. There already are signs, but if it gets much worse, you know, if we see signs from the sun, I'm sure scientists will be able to see that the sun is getting ready to do this in some ways. You might have a year's worth of warning, five years worth of warning, maybe two days worth of warning, but you might have some warning. So maybe it's better to move to a place where you feel secure if you want to like live through it. I heard caves are really great places to live. During, uh, Cause there's one more thing I forgot to mention very quickly. Sorry, Bogdan, that the sun, if it releases the flare, it could bounce off the crust of the earth, the energy, literally like the earth's crust wouldn't be able to hold it. And the, it would create like a lightning strike that would uh, basically rip the, rip the crust up. 
And Bro, that's that is, that is way more terrifying than what's going on it's right called, now. Yeah, it's like star lightning, essentially. And there, oh. there's people that said this relates to the pyramids. The pyramids might have been used during those times to get through those times because they're able to kind of uh, almost neutralize that energy so it doesn't fry you. And living in caves can help with that, too, because you're underground. You're uh, shielded from that sort of light. Uh, and also very quickly, just want to say that I'm pretty sure Jeff Bezos has uh, a house or like a really secret facility out in the middle of the, uh, in like New Mexico where those mountains are like the, the Rocky mountain trail line is. So that's a good place. If I was a billionaire, I would apocalypse. do that. 100%. Yeah. Why not, man? Uh, yeah. You live as, you know, you live as safe as you can and wherever, you know, the most remote place possible. Well, that's the thing of the, the trial by, um, fire and by water, like the cataclysms, um, what was said about it is that the mountain people are who survived the floods. Mm. So like we have all these like mountain traditions, a lot of Abrahamic type of religions um, and like Tibet, um, Tibetan Buddhism and all these traditions of like Mount, this association of mountains and these mystic knowers. And part of the reason that could be, these are the only people who survived to know the history (laughs) of humanity to be able to, you know, compile wisdom because much of our, much of our knowledge is just compiled. Like, I, I don't know how to make a pen. I don't know how to make a computer. I don't, I don't know how to make any of this. If, if I got marooned on an Island, like you and me, like we'd be, you know, working with sticks and stones, like probably forever. Like, I don't think we would ever get much past that. We would make some nice tools, but I mean, you know what my advice is, what's that head for the Hills, head, the hills. head, head no head for the Hills. That's a saying. Right, you would say when you're running away from a battle, this is something people would say, head for the hills, right? You're trying to escape. So that's my joke right now that I'm trying to, that kind of didn't make it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. The idea is like, listen, like you're saying, like we'd be screwed, right? If we had to escape and just like we're so used to living in a society, these these crystallized ways of being that we've, you know, have been habitualized to live in, but they're not really how we, our our ancestors live, our ancient ancestors, um, the ones pre civilization. And who's to say pre civilization is linear? You know, we might have had civilization and then pre-civilization and then civilization again. And like you said, a disaster comes. It kind of sends people back to the Stone Ages, as they say. Right. And you have to go back to the basics. And that's something I want to get in because you mentioned the archetype of the end times. And that's so the natural end times, those, like I said, are not ones to worry about. They're ones out of our control. We, we do what we can every day. We live in a certain way so that we can be ready for things like that. We always maybe keep it in the back of our heads. Now, the end times that are caused from humanity's own uh, actions are a different story. And this is something that, you know, I think has been around forever because if you think about it, if we're killing each other, we're putting an end time to each each other in individual mm-hmm. violence is a, is a way of is, is we're, you know we're destroying our race we're destroying our consciousness it's a tragedy if you think about it uh, every single person that's that's had to deal with that uh so you know ultimately we also could be uh the ones that are 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 our own undoing we could be the ones that lead to our own undoing in the sense that we have certain technologies. So in the past, like I mentioned, the industrial revolution, we were poisoning the water. Uh, in London, you had the great stink. People got like cholera and all these diseases because the water was so filthy with sewage that just breathing the air in, breathing the air in got them sick. People, the rich people, head for the, they headed for the hills. They went out into the rural areas where they could breathe still, where the trees still existed. So this is something that you know we should remember now as well. Uh, it's important to you know understand that uh, it's it's not as easy to stay healthy in crowded places. 
Um, it's important to get out and get that fresh air. So another thing that we can do to ourselves, which is what we've been doing, is environmental pollutants, right? So the, whether it's pesticides in the crops uh, or the way that we factory farm animals or the way that we pollute the oceans, the way we pollute our water supplies, uh, these are all things that have you know, catastrophic consequences for our future, for our children. And we're obviously not thinking uh, about the past right now, but the way we're acting so haphazardly about where we're going in the future. We're clearly not getting the memories of our ancestors. And lastly, there's another thing I want to bring up here because I'm, I'm involved with this, uh, especially because I'm a teacher and I work with kids, is the whole idea of electrosmog. And honestly, mm -hmm. Bogdan, if you know anyone who wants to talk about this and knows a lot more about this than I do, I suggest you have them on your show. Because this is where we're going. This is kind of the cutting edge, in my opinion. Electrosmog, the idea that all our appliances, all our cell phones, uh, any cell phone tower, any sort of their cable box or Wi-Fi router, all the 5G cells right, that are being installed. Now, all these things, they have uh, you know, electromagnetic, essentially, frequencies. And a lot of them are, they're extra frequencies. It's almost like you don't want them in our bodies. I mentioned in the astro astrological podcast that the sun can, if it hits us with a flare, it could hurt us potentially because mm -hmm. we're also electromagnetic beings, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's important to remember that these appliances, these tools that we use also uh, can be detrimental to our health because our body vibrates, our DNA has a frequency. I mean, our heartbeat is beating because of an electromagnetic pulse. And so our cells are ultimately being told what to do by our DNA. And I want to bring DNA here because we were talking about genetic memory. Mm -hmm. Okay. And our DNA, that's our, that's our lineage. That's, that's the, the lineage of humanity, physic, biological humanity on how to live well and how to, I think humanity wants to survive. I think, I think organic life wants to thrive. Okay. But I think some right now what we're dealing with is some of these inorganic things that we've created that we brought into our organic sacred space that we have to maintain and be very wary of. Um, we, we're not realizing the, the effects that it's having on us. And we're not, it's, it's too subtle at this point and not enough people are feeling it that I'm worried that we're going to go too far with it before we can actually do something about it and even walk back some of the, uh, how dependent we've become on this sort of technology and, and the serious detrimental effects it could have on human health. There's this common notion, which I think is a big shadow aspect of humanity. And I've been guilty of saying things like this before uh, many years ago, where in the face of all this pollution, in the face of all these things that humans are doing, there's this sentiment that maybe it'd be better off if humans didn't exist. You know, there's this idea that, you know, oh, we're like yeah. a virus on the planet. And that, like, that's such an anti-life statement. And it seems... So like, it seems almost like a moral thing. Like, you know, yeah, oh, yes, you, we'd be better that, right? off if we didn't exist. But I think that's the shadow side of all of the environmental type discussions, which is that, you know, we see our negative effects. And rather than looking back into the myths and seeing like how we can overcome them, we think, oh, you know, we're filled with original sin and just are bad and they're a virus and that, you know, and I, I see a lot of people making mentions of it and it, it, they're good points, obviously, but they have this deep sentiment of them with uh, all this lockdown. Oh, pollution has decreased. And there's like an underlying statement there. It's like, maybe if like, um, there wasn't people, like there wouldn't be any problems on the earth. And, um, I'm on team human, so I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can, you can safely count me amongst your ranks on that team, Bogdan. Uh, you know, that's interesting because I think there's a, there's a dual lesson there. So I think it's good that we see that pollution has gone down, right? Um, I think environmental 
capitalism has a very good cause, but there is a deep shadow there and one that uh, leads to human hating and being anti-human and being self-loathing, which is very unhealthy uh, and will not lead to a good environment for your inner life and your outer life as well. Right. It's like a self-hate that's projected on the collective. So it's like the same self-hate that we feel about our own um, shortcomings and flaws. It's projected out into society as a whole. And as we know, when we feel uh, self, you know, our self-worth is lower, we self-hate. It's not a good state to function. And it's also not a good state when applied to society to think that, you know, society is evil, that all of government is evil. These ideas don't, they're a shirking of responsibilities because it's like, that's evil. That's corrupted. Nothing can be done rather than being like, I'm actually a part of the problem. Like, because I don't intervene, it happens. And it's like, exactly. Yeah. Intervene, do what you need to do. Yeah. You know what, when you say the government is a problem or whatever, you can say, I am the government. When you can right. say the doctors are the problem, you can say, I am a doctor. Right. That's the exactly. point is we need to really take ownership of our lives. And uh, that is that is happening, I would say. I think it is it's just such a challenge for whatever reason uh, for an individual to really lead. Uh, like, where are these heroes? They're out there. You know what I mean? Like, they're out there totally. I think this shadow is just so thick and dense that we yeah. really, it, it needs to be worked on locally. Okay, forget about the great leader that's going to lead us. You know where that great leader is going to lead us? Straight to hell, because that's what keeps happening, right? So ultimately, we need to lead ourselves, and it's so important that we have this inner revolution right now. Um, And that's why I said earlier, I think we can have a renaissance, because like you said, if we could all awake personally right now with this time, uh, that will undo whatever the the great planners have, you know, planned out for the collective uh, to do because I don't think that's where we're going. I think right now, if we if we really believe positively, and I don't, you know, I, I was such a pessimist growing up, so I know I want people to believe me when I say this. I do. Uh, I feel very wholeheartedly that we could be headed for a very positive direction. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't see the negative stuff going on, and we don't talk about it like we are here. I think we have some grave threats to humanity that we must face. But because where we are right now, I think we're poised to face them better than ever. And I'm, and I'm, mm. I'm banking on it. I'm banking on humanity, man. I'm not, I'm not throwing in the towel. Exactly. Yet. Yeah. And it's, I think it's like, it's that next step. So first you encounter the shadow. So you can encounter your own internal shadow, everything that you don't like to believe about yourself, that you don't like about yourself, everything that bothers you, everything that bothers you about other people. And then there's the collective shadow, which is, you know, all the things that humans do that are wrong, evil, pollution, how we react. Um, and the first stage is you encounter it, right? And the typical response is to hate it and to like push away from it. But I think the, what myth and the archetypes teach us is that you actually need to confront it and see what the wisdom is in it and see how you are also part of the problem so that you can move through and be part of the um, solution to that shadow. So for example, during these times, there's a lot of shadow aspects that are being revealed about ourselves and society as a whole by this situation of quarantine, right? Like our inherent lack of security is being shown that like all it takes is some natural phenomena, which basically a virus is, to move through. And it it can, this whole uh, society, this whole basically deck of cards we've built can, is, is not as stable as it seemed. I mean, if we had asked somebody a couple of months ago, do you think, most of society could just be shut down like across the world at the same time. And for what reason people would be like, uh, maybe if there was like 
World War Three or something like that, or maybe if a comet destroyed half of the Earth. Yeah, I could see that. But like an invisible pathogen, which is pretty scary because how little control do you have of that? All you can do is like isolate yourself. It's that shadow of like, we don't have control on a personal level and we don't have control on a societal level. But I like to challenge that because that's where you encounter the shadow, right? You see the shadow, (laughs) but how do we go through it? And I think it's, no, we have control and influence over what we have control and influence over. And that's what we, that's what we focus on. So like in terms of this situation, it's like, you got a lot of free time. It's like, do the things that you've been wanting to do, like have fun, relax, learn a new hobby, do the things that you always said you wish you would do if you had the time. Now we have the time. And now we're butting right into the fact that it was never about the fact that we didn't have time, that we didn't do those things that we wish we did. It's because it's the fundamental human condition, inertia, entropy. If we don't make an extra effort to do that, which is for ourselves, it won't get done. And people think that people who are high achievers and very successful are like somehow special. And I don't think that they are other than the fact that they just fight with their demons all the time. It's the only real difference. And they win sometimes. You telling me I got to slay dragons every day, man? You got to oh. slay dragons from the safety of your home. Stay isolated. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Practice social distancing. Right. Swear to God, if I hear that one more time, man. It's become, oh. it's become like a word. It's become like an Orwellian yeah. word. But it's I too think Orwellian. we should cultivate the social connection that we do have. I mean, talking to people on the phone, like the internet, like how amazing is the internet right now? Like it was this podcast right now. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Like just the fact that, you know, even where everyone's just inside, it's like, there's still like, you know, things happening all over the place. Sure. More, even more so like uh, a lot of artists are releasing like live music from like their homes and just free stuff. And it's, Oh, it's great. It's cool. Yeah, no, there's a bright side here, but I would say the dark side, and this is, this is kind of what I was trying to get to is like, we can't, we got to be optimistic. We got to like put our will in it every day, but we can't be uh, ignorant of what's of the negative things going on because mm-hmm. if we have things going well, we really should be informed about what's not going well so we can help alleviate that shadow. We can't just get too boxed in with our own life. You know, obviously we want to work on ourselves too, but we also want to help the people exactly. out around us. So Right, right. And I think we all play our part in any, you know, any community that's in distress, right? So we are in a physical community that's nearby. Uh, we're also in like a state community. We're also in just a community as a country, uh, as a, like an internet community, whatever. Every person has their own part to play. And I think their greatest gift is sharing what they love with those people to uplift. So like for me, what I've been thinking about is like, how can I help people out during this time? Because I, I feel like the strong urge to, you know, get out on the front lines and go. I, I obviously don't have a medical license. So I really can't. Right. Uh, right. But I have this urge to like, I should be doing something. Right. Um, and what I've kind of come to terms with is like the, the hidden epidemic that's occurring that I see. And that's all of the psychological issues that yes. are coming out because of this. And I feel like that's, that's where I can come in that by, mm-hmm. you know, offering an encouraging word by listening to someone struggle by being like 
So I, I just wrote an article on holisticpsyche.com. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to look at it, but it, it was just like an honest reflection of my struggle with like creating stuff like this podcast and with writing articles and how hard it is. And, you know, people just see the finished product and they think, oh, like, you know, they just, you know, do it. That's just how they are. But like, what we don't talk about is our deep struggles. And I think the more we share our struggles, the more we form the greater community of humanity because we see, oh, everyone struggles with this. This is not like something that's just my problem. It's, you know, everyone is a little bit thrown off by what's happening. Like people express it through different ways. Some people express it through comedy. Some people express it by isolating even more. Some people by, you know, contacting everybody they know. Um, And that's what myths teach us is that these human experiences are common and that we shouldn't shy away from our difficulty because in our difficulty is our strength. And if we share our difficulty with people, it gives them strength too, because it shows that like, we can overcome challenges basically that's that how we there's a the way shadow. to overcome yeah exactly because yeah ultimately uh it's if we share struggles with each other and we vent to each other obviously you know we're not just venting to blow off steam but we're actually trying to get to the root of problems and understand why we feel a certain way about things um that's very positive and so you know i, I want to encourage people because even i'm trying to figure out this way uh, how to get more involved right now and what way can you help? Um, you know, there are a lot of issues that I feel very strongly about that, you know, I'm, I'm donating as much money as I can to in some ways, you know, times are tight, uh, but I do donate to causes if I feel they're worth it and I feel like they affect my future or my students' future or anyone else. Um, but then there's also physically, you got to put the word out. You got to spread awareness. You got to try to change that collective mindset. And it happens person by person. It's not, uh, it's, you know, that's how you can make a difference. Like you said, psychologically, right now we're so focused on the epidemi- uh, epidemiological effects and the physical effects of this thing but ultimately the psychological impact of this will be much longer lasting than this virus although people are passing away and that also is a you know a very impactful psychological event so we're, we're in a time of death and we're in a time of fear and worry and uncertainty so all the shadow is being you know uh, uh-huh. summoned right now and en mass if you think about it but it's right. a good time and to process it. It's a good time to process it because we're not overwhelmed. We're at home. We might have the time to figure out what's going on. And not shy away from it. To reflect yeah. on the fact that this life, this society, this culture that you know many of us find ourselves complaining about is actually really a, a great thing. Like what humans together have built in terms of civilization is it's it's remarkable and amazing. And only when it's kind of threatened do we see, oh wow, like you know, this is fragile. All this is fragile. Our communities are fragile. Like we start thinking about more fundamental human problems than the ones that we've been concerned with. Like, you know, what am I going to do if I can't pay rent? What am I going to do if I can't get food? Should, you know, should people in the community start bartering? And you start like getting back into real life. What it means to be a real human. Yeah, exactly. What it means to be a natural being on this earth. Really. Yeah. Yeah built a kind of cocoon around ourselves. But the problem is there's invaders from within the cocoon. You can't fully cocoon yourself out. Yeah. And what's interesting is that it's the mental state we're in. That's the toxic part. I'd say, I think our culture has become uh, devoid of value in some ways. And so people like, because we are dealing with this tough time, we don't know what to go fall back on. And usually what would you fall back on your traditions, your values? Consumerism. Right. 
right but that's not a value back on you can't fall back on that in a time like this the consumer chain is breaking before your eyes so you know people are gonna realize real quick that that's not a an eternal value something that's long lasting and filling in any way so that's that's definitely a good point you know we saw some looting we mentioned looting last time on the last episode saw a little bit of that in sicily over the weekend uh in italy so you know hopefully uh you know hopefully that's you know just uh an occurrence of it. Hopefully over here, we don't see too much of that. It's inevitable. We might see some of it. There was a little bit of uh, looting at a city uh, a little bit north of me, but it's, you know, one of the, one of the more uh, gang violence statistic, uh, statistically high cities in, in America. So, you know, that's something that doesn't necessarily happen just because of the quarantine and whatnot. It's incredibly dangerous for a community when people start getting into this mode where it's like survival of myself over everything else. Because that's what actually undermines the whole community. Because if everyone's acting like that, you don't have a community anymore. Right. right. So and we're all, need to be we're very careful about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're all operating right now under an end time scenario, uh, like you said, archetype. And that's so dangerous. <laughs> yeah. If exactly. we all start thinking that way, if we all start buying into that, man, uh, who's to say that we won't create that? Also, now, also, you know, it, yeah, at least what we can control. We can't control the natural things, but we can't control the things that, you know, we work with in our society and, and some of the technologies that could be threatening to us. We can live smart lives to survive. Right. Also, this, the end times archetype also always seems to imply that there will be like a great hero or redeemer that will rise to save us all. And I'd like to caution people against that because I think in our age and in this current human myth we're living, the individual is the hero, that there is no collective hero. And if anyone comes to the stand and starts telling you that they're going to fix all your problems, just, just study world war two and just see exactly how that goes down when a, when a country is in crisis, because it's very dangerous uh, because when we're fearful, we're very open to being manipulated because we'll do anything for safety. It's like a survival mechanism. We have to remember that fundamentally there's some things we can't protect ourselves from, but all we can do is, you know, do our part, live our true life, connect with our community, make sure everyone that we know is okay. And, um, you know, politicians are saying we'll make it through this. And it's like, yeah, I mean, what's the other option? <laughs> They'll make it through it. We have to know our history. We, like I said, history informs us of sound psychology. So if we want to build a, a better world, we have to look at the, uh, you know, our own actions in the past and the actions of other people uh, and other civilizations, let's say, in the past to really understand how to best step forward in these times. And I think we'll be a-okay if we can just do that. Well, if the myths teach us anything is that in the face of challenge, in the face of imminent death, the hero succeeds in some way by some unfathomable means, maybe some uh, magical force comes in to help. I mean, that's, that's how the myths tell it that, you know, you do your best. Yes. Yes. And uh, Uh, unseen forces will help you. And I believe that. I believe that. All right, sir. Eric. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. I look forward to speaking again soon. And uh, once again, you know, if you never thought you were into history, uh, you're living it every day. The fact that you even can think of yourself as a being means you have a history and it means you you have a purpose here. So, you know, just remember that as we're going through these tough times in case anyone is feeling uh, a little bit hopeless or a little bit purposeless. 
there's we all we need all hands on deck here for this. This is a collective right. uh, work to to try to deal with this this shadow personally and collectively, and uh, that'll be the next episode how we bridge those two things together. Yeah, and it's uh, a time now more than ever the understanding of these uh, mythical motifs can help us through these times where pretty much everyone is struggling to some extent. And if they're saying they're not struggling, they're probably, they just don't want to share their struggle with you because they think either you want to understand or that you'll think low of them. But just know that in times like this, everyone feels the negative and the positive of it. So we're, we're in it together. And uh, there you have it, Eric Anderson, the history professor. Let's support each other here, folks. Yes. <laughs>